0: Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hi guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Alright, thank you for joining me today. Please subscribe, please hit the bell for notifications. This allows me to provide you guys free content. Okay, so today we have Elliot Overton with us. He is all things holistic nutrition and we take a deep dive on oxalates. We also talk deeply about supplementation and why we sometimes may need support even from a carnivore diet perspective. All right, guys, let's get right into it. Um, he was a pleasure and I hope you guys learn a ton. Make sure to get your pen and paper out this time. There are a ton of notes that you can take hey guys it's Judy from nutrition with Judy and today I'm very excited I have Elliot Overton with me and we are going to talk about all things holistic nutrition oxalates sleeping and so let's get right into it Elliot thank you so much for joining me today if you can sort of introduce yourself and what got you interested in holistic nutrition uh,
1: yeah hi thanks for having me <laughs> um I uh, I guess I like science I'm interested in science I like chemistry I like biochemistry particularly interest in nutritional biochemistry and how that applies to um, human health. And I think that the conventional medical standpoint, um, generally treating symptoms tends to neglect uh, in- individual human biochemistry and how, how how individuals differ and how actually by pinpointing um, nuances in, in our biochemistry, we can potentially uh, see much better results in in human health if that makes sense so so i just a bit of background i um i went traveling through uh india i went there for about a year and i um i developed quite severe gut issues digestive issues it was like a bacterial gastroenteritis or something Mm -hmm. and um came back to the uk and i went to my doctor and i went through kind of the general recommendations and the conventional recommendations, and uh, and I saw almost no benefit. I was essentially told that I'd just have to deal with this, what was now post-infectious IBS. Um, and so that kind of spurred me on to researching alternative methods, so alternative supplements and probiotics and diets and these kinds of things. And this eventually led me on to uh, Weston A. Price Foundation. And then down that route towards like a ketogenic, low-carb kind of template. And I found that that actually really helped. It didn't completely fix it. But it, you know, essentially got got me to a point where I was no longer having severe digestive issues. Um, And so, you know, I've always been kind of interested in medicine, in herbal medicine, these kinds of things. But I decided kind of early on that I didn't want to go the conventional medical route um, because you know, particularly in the UK, but I know it's the case in the US as well, um, that, you know, people are getting sicker and sicker. Generally, you know, whatever they're doing, the conventional recommendations don't work. So actually, uh, you know, I wanted to had fairly good confidence in the the power of nutrition, in in its ability to kind of... um, you know really help people uh, deal with chronic illnesses you know conventional medicine is amazing if you break your arm or if you kind of have some acute infection but actually otherwise you know for chronic long-term illnesses then it doesn't have a great track record and so um yeah i i kind of decided i wanted to study nutrition and i had a couple of options i could have gone down the conventional university route um but that was very much many of the courses where i was looking anyway at the universities very much kind of focused on the traditional food pyramid the fda food pyramid and that was what i was trying to kind of work away from you know I, i lost faith in that so i um i went a bit of an alternative route. I, I went to somewhere called the college of naturopathic medicine. i got my nutritional therapy diploma. And, um, since that point I've, I've kind of been studying, um, learning and trying to apply what I've learned. Um, again, I, anyone who studies nutrition in any detail will understand quickly on that there's many biases and it's you know we all have our biases but actually there's lots of different schools of thought and it's kind of trying to separate the wheat from the chaff and find out what works and what doesn't work and it doesn't always apply to you know one thing doesn't always apply to everyone right so it's trying to pick out the principles that, that generally can be applied to most people and then tease out the nuances um and so yeah that's what i do so i work with people on a one-to-one basis um most of my practice is virtual so it's primarily i work with people from all around the world um and we kind of go through their health and and try to refine their diet and their lifestyle and um yeah basically help them feel better again kind of thing
0: yeah no that's very similar to what I do. And it's, um, I mean, it's amazing. It's, uh, we can have sort of a theory in our mind of what works with nutrition, and then we work with someone else. And it's like, okay, that's not really working. And then we have to get back down to the bio individuality of what makes sense for that specific person. So I totally on the same page with you. And it's very exciting, right? Um, So let's transition to talking a little bit about oxalates. I heard you on I think a couple podcasts where you talk about oxalates. And if you can sort of just give a You know, a brief explanation about what
1: oxalates are. Yeah, of course. Um, Am I right in thinking that you've had Sally Norton on the show previously? Yeah, so your listeners are probably familiar with it, but I'll go through the basics just in case there's anyone listening that aren't familiar with it. So essentially there's this idea, um, just to kind of go back, this kind of central uh, nutritional dogma, um, which persists in conventional medicine but also in nutritional circles as well and it's particularly common in today's world coming from the um let's say the the mainstream sources or official sources this idea that plants are fundamentally healthy um mm-hmm. and they are benign right and that the more plants that you eat them the the healthier you will become um but there's there's many problems with that kind of theory um and and many nuances but ultimately there's this concept of of plant toxicity that is often overlooked so uh, in regard to in kind of alternative health circles uh, naturopathic health circles these kinds of things it's well acknowledged that you have something like uh, gluten which can cause problems so gluten uh, protein found in wheat um, that can cause many problems for a variety of people um, in terms of irritating the gut in terms of kind of there's links with autoimmunity so it's well established that the gliadin and the gluten found in the wheat can, can cause problems so we know that there are certain plants or certain grains that can exert um, detrimental effects on the human body and and of course that's very individual but when you go down that rabbit hole it doesn't really end so so ultimately there are a variety of other toxins ultimately we we have this we have gluten so or gliadin which is part of the lectin family And we also have many different other types of lectins, which are found in a wide variety of kind of foods. Um, But then we also have uh, several other toxins which have the capability to cause the human body problems, especially if the gut is not in a good place. If the gut is kind of if we have underlying intestinal permeability or leaky gut, which your listeners are probably familiar with, then it can render someone a little bit more susceptible to these Types of toxins. So aside from lectins, aside from the other things that we find in grains, one of the the primary toxins that we find in plants is called oxalate. So oxalate is a, it's essentially an organic acid. It exists in many different plants, um, and it's it exists in higher quantities in certain plants than other plants. Um, and essentially, it's theorized by certain kind of plant researchers that it might be a um, it might be like a defense mechanism employed by plants um again there's this concept that you listeners are probably familiar with but just in case they're not this this idea that actually every living organism and that includes plants that includes animals and human beings and everything in between kind of thing um Everything wants to survive, right? And so everything has its own uh, mechanism or its own kind of tools by which it can survive in a kind of treacherous world. And, um, and so like animals or human beings, we have legs, we have arms, we can build tools. Um, animals uh plants don't have that plants can't run away from 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 people or from predators or from herbivores and so what they will do instead is they can release certain chemicals and they do this so they're operating on a biochemical front to basically send a signal to whoever or whatever animal is eating that that it's probably not a good idea to do that in a you know for too long because they can cause problems so oxalate is theorized to be one of these potential mechanisms it's essentially i said it was an organic acid but basically it, what it is it's a chemical which can bind very tightly to certain minerals so mm-hmm. it binds tightly to calcium it binds tightly to magnesium potassium other minerals it's a strong chelator think of it a bit like a magnet and in a plant it can exist in various different forms but what you find is you find uh, when it's bound with calcium it forms these kind of crystals or sharp needle-like structures. So if you look at an oxalate crystal under a microscope, there's various different kinds of structures that it can exist in, but essentially it is capable of doing severe mechanical damage to um, an organism which consumes it. So if you look, if you think of... um, I mean, some of the plants which contain very high levels of oxalate, particularly spinach. Okay, so spinach is very high. Rhubarb is very high. Um, we have kind of dark chocolate or, or cacao that's extraordinarily high, certain types of tea, so black tea, green tea. Um, we have <clears throat> other plants, including Swiss chard, including um, sweet potato, including potato, white potato. There's 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 a long list of plants which contain the the this this toxin in 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 varying different degrees um but essentially um there are also some plants which don't contain much of it so it's not saying that all plants have this toxin but we have to kind of distinguish and so the way that this toxin is basically operating in the human body is that when we consume too many of these plants the way it becomes problematic is that we can we 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 absorb this oxalate and we can actually accumulate it. So over a long period of time when someone eats a, a diet which is very high in these types of plants, say if they're on a traditional kind of ketogenic diet which is heavy in plant foods, if they're on a vegan diet or even just like a standard Western diet, which is high in these foods, um, essentially what we find is that actually the body over long periods of time, especially if there's a susceptibility, if they've got poor gut health, if there's various other things going on then essentially the body will accumulate this. And what is happening is is that when we are eating a food containing oxalate, we're breaking that down in the gut and all throughout the GI tract, depending on the form of the oxalate. So you have oxalate, uh, soluble oxalate or insoluble oxalate. So the soluble forms of oxalate are going to be absorbed right throughout the GI tract all through, um, you know, in in the soft tissues in the mouth, through the esophagus, in the stomach, in the small intestine, the large intestine. So you're going to get the passage of this, crystal this kind of um yeah this chemical structure through into into the bloodstream and it travels through the blood and when it's traveling through the blood um here because your minerals if you recall me saying that it is a chelator mineral chelator then because your Blood is packed full of minerals, and your tissues are packed full of minerals. Essentially, what's happening is, is that it's forming a. It can form a. If it comes into contact with a certain mineral, such as calcium, it can basically precipitate out of the blood into a tissue and form into somewhat of a crystal or a stone. And so, oftentimes, what happens is, is that these crystals can deposit in the joints or the muscles, or they may deposit in uh, various other organs. They can deposit throughout the vascular system, and when they do, you you can essentially think of it <clears throat> in an oversimplified very kind of oversimplified way is if someone basically got a very small shard of glass kind of stabbed that in your tissue and that could be in the vascular system it could be in the muscle as i said it could be many people have it in the thi- thyroid gland there's there's a couple of studies showing that you know uh, i think there was one study in adults over 50 or over 60 showing that up to 80% of of them actually had significant calcium oxalate deposits in the thyroid gland wow. and and this so this is is very common right and and if you ask any kind of conventional doctor or any conventional dietitian about calcium oxalate they will generally think that it is only a concern in relation to cal, uh, in, in relation to the disease kidney stones so so that is kind of the characteristic disease that calcium oxalate is associated with and has been associated with in the clinical literature anyway so Most of around 80 percent of all kidney stones are actually composed of calcium oxalate. And so when someone does develop kidney stones, what that is essentially what that means or what is causing that most of the time is generally high levels of oxalate circulating around the blood being passed out the kidneys because the kidneys is one of the main ways that we're getting rid of it. Yes um essentially it's precipitating with calcium and then it's forming into a stone that that, that is not being passed through the through the the urinary tract so that is one of the main diseases that oxalate can cause but what isn't very well acknowledged uh it's getting a lot more attention now is that actually there's a wide body of literature showing that actually there are Calcium oxalate can be involved in many different types of diseases or pathologies, but it's not necessarily identified as a causal factor. Sometimes what they'll do, for instance, I mean, there's a couple of papers showing that breast cancer, for instance... Mm -hmm calcium oxalate may be involved in breast cancer so actually what they found is is that actually um, in in certain cases of breast cancer there is significant calcium oxalate deposits in the breast tissue same thing goes for something like um, uh, uh, ovarian cancer other types of cancers but what this stuff is doing is that when the body is accumulating it say because there is like a high body burden of this then essentially um, it's not a benign thing right it's not just that you are kind of you're 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 accumulating in tissue it's not really doing anything that's that's not what's happening it's causing a lot of damage when it's in your body right so when the body accumulates this when it's say you've got it in the joints it can produce a condition which is actually referred to as oxalate induced arthropathy or oxalate related arthropathy i believe and that that is basically a condition which mimics it mimics almost every single symptom of arthritis right Mm. but it's not arthritis the immune system is not attacking the joints what's happening is you have these crystals lodged in the joints and every time the joint moves you think about it if you've got this sharp structure lodged in the connective tissue whenever you move that or whenever you put any kind of pressure on that that is going to cause stress that's going to cause damage it causes mechanical damage to the tissue so it can actually cause an inflammatory response this is what you see actually wherever it's deposited It is activating the immune system consistently Right. But you also have not only do you have these kind of large macromolecules or large crystals kind of thing, you also have very small types of oxalate as well. So you have these things called nanocrystals or um, microcrystals and what they can do, they're particularly uh, dangerous, really, because what they do is they're not only extracellular, they are intracellular so they can get into cells. You see when you're depositing or accumulating these crystals, that's generally in an extracellular fashion, right? But when you are when you have these micro or nanocrystals, they're getting they can puncture through cell membranes. They can actually cause cells to burst open. Wow. So 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 you have cells which basically the membrane if you puncture that all of the contents can spill out and that's what you get with calcium oxalate or with these kind of microcrystals. but when they get into the cell they're they're biochemically active right what that basically means is that in your cell you you think you've got hundreds of thousands maybe millions i don't think anyone knows how many enzymes are a, are functioning inside cells so you've got these tiny little proteins which are performing a wide variety of different functions they're converting one thing to another thing and one thing to another thing all of the time that's how your cells work Um, but essentially what these can do what these what these nanocrystals can do is they can interfere with the function of specific enzymes in the body so or inside the cells so you have these um certain enzymes called carboxylase enzymes so it's well established that actually oxalate can Dock on to the enzyme and these carboxylase enzymes are involved in multiple areas of metabolism, how we're breaking down amino acids, how we're breaking down fats, how we're undergoing kind of gluconeogenesis, how we are um, breaking down proteins, glucose, all of this kind of stuff They're, they're really important. But essentially, yeah, these these biotin-dependent enzymes, oxalate can dock onto that and actually kind of displace biotin or stick there, and biotin's a B-vitamin. Essentially, what I'm trying to say is that it can really screw with intracellular biochemistry. And you have the organelles, the the place where your cells make energy, called mitochondria, right? And so actually, the mitochondria is like the hub of the cell, how we are making atp in the form of or sorry energy in the form of atp which allows us to do all the things that we need to do well oxalate is is has been found to like dock onto the mitochondria and it can cause a phenomena referred to as mitochondrial dysfunction which is essentially you know there's various kind of researchers you read any paper on mitochondria these days and they will relate many long-term chronic illnesses with mitochondrial dysfunction, with a lack of energy, or it's referred to as the bioenergetic model, when cells don't have enough energy, then actually you can get a l- lots of different manifestations of that. You can have kind of insulin resistance, or you can have kind of many other different types of autoimmune conditions. And and there's, there's many theories now which are saying that actually an, a, an overall energetic deficit inside cells may be the root of that. And so if we consider that oxalate is, um, oxalate is potentially driving some of that mitochondrial dysfunction, it's driving chronic inflammation in tissues, it's driving many of these pathologic changes that you see in other diseases, there's a very good reason to think that actually oxalate is involved, not only kidney stones, but potentially in many of the chronic health conditions that are not considered to be related to oxalate.
0: Hey guys, just to let you know, my carnivore cure book is back in stock for nine months. It was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today. That has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply. So get your copy today on amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I saw that you wrote a few um, articles on B1 or thiamine. Do you want to talk about the relationship with oxalates and the need for more thiamine?
1: Yeah, of course. So so this is like... Um, it hasn't really been fleshed out that much in the literature. There's a couple of kind of theoretical links there. Um, generally, just to give some background, right? So oxalates are not only something that we find in the diet and then not necessarily always problematic in the diet in small Mm -hmm. amounts. It's when we have high amounts coming in consistently going through the kidneys, going through the liver, causing damage, causing damage in the rest of the system, potentially driving things like fibromyalgia, arthritis, these kinds of other conditions. Um, And we also robbing us of minerals when we are... I haven't said that basically the body is accumulating this, but then it can get rid of it it's going to be getting rid of it, and that's referred to as dumping, and that's going to be going through the kidneys or the gut um essentially when it's doing that, it is stealing minerals, so to speak, because you think of it's it's a magnet it can bind very tightly with potassium magnesium calcium iron zinc uh it's pulling those things out, so it's doing all of that but that is just on a dietary front so that's just considering that okay we have these toxins coming from the diet but at the same time oxalate is also a normal metabolite of Mm -hmm. liver of, of of human biochemistry right so we are naturally going to be producing some oxalate the chemical structure of oxalate in our liver on a daily basis in a very small amount and that's not a bad thing um but what has been characterized or what has been kind of investigated is this concept of endogenous synthesis so when the body makes too much itself so there is um there's a couple of conditions one is referred to as primary hyperoxaluria okay primary hyperoxaluria and this is where a lot of the information comes about when the um when the body becomes completely overburdened with oxalate we, 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 we look at the literature on primary hyperlox- hyperoxyluria and you can see that it deposits in all of these different organs. And so primary hyperoxyluria is basically involving this couple different types, but it's basically involving some of the enzymes in, in the liver involved in something called the glyoxylate pathway. Mm-hmm. When those enzymes, when someone has an inherited um, mutation in those enzymes Essentially, what what can happen is, is that they are uncontrollably driving intermediates, driving precursors down this pathway, making a lot of oxalate themselves. Right. So actually, this is a pathologic condition. It's in an it's like, a you know, it's a genetic heritable condition kind of thing with a genetic mutation. But essentially, the, these per, these people become so overburdened by oxalate. Because they cannot stop making it. There's no off switch in their liver to stop them from making it. So now that we've kind of covered that, when we're looking at that pathway, it's not only... Or it doesn't seem to be the case that it's only the people with this genetic condition that that can make oxalate. In fact, it turns out that there are many individuals who are potentially making too much oxalate in their liver for a variety of different reasons, which are non-genetic in origin. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? So actually, if you look at something, if we look at some of the precursors, for instance, you see that we have something called methylglyoxal. And that is um, generally produced, uh, it's related to protein glycation, but that can be in very high levels in diabetes, for instance. So someone who is a uncontrolled diabetic, they've got metabolic syndrome, they could potentially be theoretically more likely to make more oxalate in the body and be more predisposed uh, sorry, predisposed to the problem of having oxalates. <clears throat> at the same time, if we're looking at the steps steps in the pathways, to be able to divert certain intermediates away from producing oxalate, then we need sufficient levels of certain nutrients. Okay, One of those is vitamin B6 and one of those is thiamine. So the reason for this is, is because if we have enough vitamin B6 or if we have enough thiamine, then the precursors that would ordinarily go towards oxalate can be can be made use of in a positive way. So we can take these precursors and actually convert them into glycine or hydroxyproline, which are amino acids mm-hmm. and which we're using to synthesize things like collagen tissue and whatnot. So actually, there's a lot of nuance here. And it's again, it's, it's purely theoretical. But theoretically, there is some animal research to indicate that actually, when someone is severely B6 deficient, when they are severely thymine deficient, vitamin B1 deficient, then they may be predisposed to making more oxalates. Yes, yeah. And there, so there seems to be a relationship there. And again, it's theoretical and it's it hasn't really been explored much. But what I can say is that I get, since I've been doing kind of videos and interviews and things on oxalates, I get people from all around the world coming to me directly to address this issue um and what i often see is that the people who do have problems with oxalates oftentimes there is a problem with b1 okay so a thiamine deficit which is enormously common there's it's actually it's crazy how little attention this this deficiency Mm -hmm. actually gets i think it's probably one of the the key things in our modern world but that gets completely overlooked so so there's generally b1 issues and people who have oxalate problems and they respond marvelously to to thymine oftentimes but then at the same time there's also potentially b6 issues Mm -hmm. and so this can be identified somewhat if you're doing a there's a lab called great plains laboratory and they run a test called the organic acids test and occasionally when you when someone thinks that they have problems with oxalates, they display all of, all of the symptoms kind of thing. When you run one of these tests, what you will find is that in many cases, they have a couple of the markers. One is called glycolic acid. Another one is called glycaric acid. They can be quite substantially elevated. And these are kind of, they can be indicators for someone having this problem of endogenously producing oxalate, Right. No, it's
0: interesting because I use Great Plains Labs with my clients. And so it's funny because there's a few things. um, So I'm totally on the same page with you, but um, there's a few markers on that test, the organic acids test that you can tell if it's an endogenous oxalate creation. So I think it's like the B6 is really low. And then they also have gut health issues, right? Like, so
1: you'll see like arabinose is really high. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, I know. I'm not convinced that you see... I in the great the great plains training right they will mm-hmm. William Shaw Dr. William Shaw the guy yeah. who runs the lab he will train doctors and practitioners and things that this idea that Rabinose is a candida marker was a yeast marker okay now I there's there's two schools of thought here there's okay. the William Shaw school of thought and then there's the Susan Owens school of thought okay so Susan Owens Has has been studying this for a long time, and she has basically laid out, and she's done a couple presentations on it. I can send you those after if you want. But essentially, she's laid out like how Arabinos. There's very little evidence that that is a candida marker, okay? And in many cases, in many cases, Arabinos can actually be a sign of positive gut health, like good gut health. And that actually when arabinose drops, oftentimes oxalate increases. So there's this idea as well, which I don't I don't ascribe to and I don't agree with, is that yeast produces oxalates or that candida is is a significant source of oxalates. If someone goes to a kind of traditional functional medicine practitioner or a functional doctor, they will, if they if they run one of these tests, and I see people who have this so frequently they've been to a doctor they've had this test done and they come up high on oxalate and also high on arabinose Mm -hmm. they when they consult with great plains laboratory or the kind of training that they've received from great plains the the kind of idea or this dogma is that if you kill the yeast if you get rid of the yeast then the oxalate will will improve naturally because the yeast is the main source of oxalate i can't find any any evidence for that at all and i've searched and searched and searched in fact i I, again i'm in complete agreement with susan owens here that actually i think yeast is sometimes more of a symptom of oxalate problems rather than a cause you see certain certain species of fungus can produce oxalate that is there's no pro- like there's no um kind of uh, argument there so certain types of aspergillus aspergillus mold right. um a couple of the other ones that kind of mold species can but in terms of candida albicans that is not capable as per any of the research that i can find and even the reference studies that that great plains reference it doesn't demonstrate that 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 is a significant producer of oxalate now there is research actually showing and it's very interesting and it's kind of there's not a lot out there but there is in in, research showing that when you feed you see in the gut you have yeast species you have candida and in, in 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 a kind of healthy environment, right, in a healthy gut, you will always have candida. It's not usually pathogenic. It's in its kind of, they call it its budding state. So in its uh, commensal state. So it plays a beneficial role in kind of modulating our immune system in, you know, balancing out with the other commensals. But actually, what what you can do when you feed that a lot of oxalate, so either if you have a lot accumulated and you're dumping it through the gut, or when you just eat a really high oxalate diet, what they showed was that when you feed Candida too much oxalate, what happens is is you can you initiate a shift, so you initiate you activate a stress response in the Candida which identifies oxalate as a poison and so what it does is it goes into defense mode and when it goes into defense mode it goes from being its commensal state its budded yeast state to being its hyphal pathogenic state Mm. so you can theoretically this is again it's theoretical there's not a lot of evidence on there but the research would suggest that actually by having a high oxalate diet that's potentially going to be causing candida from to go from being a good guy to being a bad guy and actually initiating that kind of candidiasis or the systemic ca- or the, the the kind of tough candida gut infection. Many people find that when they cut oxalates out of the diet or they go on a low oxalate diet, candida problems, thrush infections, fungal, fung- um, toenail fungus mm-hmm. tend to disappear. They tend to go away in and of themselves. That's what I found anyway. Um, so, yeah. We were talking about the Great Plains organic acids. Yes. yes.
0: No. So I'm on. I'm on the same page as you. Um, the way that I've been trained with, and you know, I actually haven't seen um Dr. Shaw's um presentations, but I mean, I've had other trainings, and uh, the ones that I've seen, it wasn't about the that the candida is feeding the oxalates. It was kind of the other way that you had just mentioned. It was more that eating a high diet in oxalates, or, you know, having too much collagen from the hydroxyproline that goes down to the oxalic acid, you know, that route, having too little B6, or like you said, thiamine, all of that can then, you know, further exacerbate any gut health issues like candida. And so that's sort of how I was sort of trained from GPL, it wasn't the, that the um, candida feeds um, oxalates to be higher, so... Um, I'm on the same page with you, but I definitely want to see the Susan Owens um, presentations. I think that'll be interesting. I think oxalates are so interesting. Um, One question I had for you was in terms of carnivore. So, you know, a lot of people follow the carnivore diet. They hear um, talks from you or from Sally Norton, and then they hear, oh, every single, you know, pain, joint pain. um, You know, I, I feel worse after going carnivore for a while, and then everyone is starting to attribute it to... Oxalate dumping. And I just wanted to hear your opinion from your clients. Um, what have you seen? Um, does it make sense that everyone's sort of, you know, blaming everything on oxalates? And then, you know, if you think about it, all of us kind of eat a ho- high oxalate diet before knowing that it's oxalate, um, high oxalates. And so, why is it that some people have very blatant symptoms like the kidney stones and then other people? it's a kind of a guess, right? Like I have back aches or I have joint pain. Oh, it must be oxalate dumping, right? So if you can kind of talk about that.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's something that is, when you first come across this information, like it's easy to ascribe every health problem to oxalates. And there are yeah. people who who do that, right? They'll say, you know, some of the groups and things, you, any any joint pain, any kind of gut issues, anything like that, they say, oh, it's oxalate dumping kind of thing. And so it's really, you know, it's kind of, it's very common um, I get a lot of people coming to me, they've heard either Sally Norton or Susan Owens or myself talking about oxalates and they kind of, you know, they think it's their magic bullet, so to speak. They think that every single symptom that they experience is because of these oxalates and you see, right, just to go, right, just to go back to some of the symptoms which are really common, <sighs> the the main symptoms that someone tends to experience and it can be different for different people but oftentimes what you might see is related to muscle aches and pains joint pain that is unexplained and that actually comes on with certain foods or comes on with the um with the limiting of certain foods right so that is one of the key symptoms that a lot of the people describe there's also skin issues Skin issues that flare up with different types of foods and go away with certain types of foods, again, that's quite common. Another thing that people notice is urinary issues. So urinary issues in the context of frequent urination, in the context of burning urination, frequent urinary tract tract infections, kidney pain, that kind of thing. This is reflecting how the body is getting rid of oxalates. We can do it through every orifice. So we can do it through the nasal passages, through the eyes, through the skin, through the kind of gut, through the the urinary tract. Again, vulvodynia, that is a key symptom. So if there's vaginal pain, if there's chronic vaginal yeast infections, chronic anal itching, chronic vaginal itching these are key signs and symptoms if there is any kind of um gut issues that cycle which are not related to any identifiable factor so what you often see is that if someone says they are like on a keto or carnivore diet or something and they have perfect digestion but every two weeks they get an intense bout of diarrhea that lasts for two days and during that they feel fatigued they feel kind of um, they feel like they have issues so generally the the oxalate related kind of the oxalate phenotype Let's call it uh, the people who experience cyclical changes and there's lots of symptoms that you know If we understand like what this is doing and where it can be Deposited you know in the thyroid gland it can cause kind of antibodies and high TSH and all this kind of stuff so actually There are a wide variety of things that this can cause, but those are really the main kind of symptoms that I have managed to kind of identify that consistent. Now, one of the key things which is going to indicate whether someone is going through this, there's a couple of things, is like those symptoms that we've already talked about, they can be explained by so many other potential factors right? There's so many things which can cause joint pain. There's so many things which can cause inflammation or urinary tract infections or anything like that, or frequent urination, for instance, that can be caused by by an electrolyte imbalance, for instance, Mm -hmm. really easily. So actually it's important that we don't, that we don't kind of paint everything with the same brush and oftentimes like people will come to me thinking they've got oxalate problems but i'll say look that is way like that is definitely not at the top of your list right now you've got all of this other stuff going on that you need to address the oxalates are like they probably not even an issue issue for you right and so it's important to differentiate kind of or to to have the listeners understand that oxalates don't appear to be a problem for everyone. They they just don't. Like, some people can eat a high oxalate diet for a long time, and when I say high oxalate, I'm talking probably 500, 600 milligrams. Okay, once you go past the kind of 1,500 milligram mark with green smoothies and things, you are asking for problems. But actually, many people who do eat kind of like a ketogenic diet with dark chocolate and things— They don't seem to have these issues, and there's a couple of, like, there's many factors which govern this. One is the composition of gut bacteria, theoretically. Another one is dietary calcium content, because dietary calcium is protective. Another one is whether someone is chronically stressed, whether they have immune activation, whether they do exercise, you know, whether they are whether they are in cr- chronic fight or flight mode, whether, they're, um, whether their gut is permeable, whether they've got good gut health. You know, there's so many factors which are involved here. So actually, it's definitely not a problem for everyone. One of the main kind of signs that would indicate that it is a problem for someone, if someone doesn't want to do testing, and I will, like, just, you know, make it clear that testing is not diagnostic. Testing differs from day to day. Like, you can do an organic acids on one person you know, Monday and then do it again on Wednesday and it can be completely different. So it's a snapshot in time. And the way that the body's clearing oxalates is different for different people. So it follows like a weird circadian rhythm that is different for each person. And so actually we can't rely on testing to diagnose this. What I often find is that when the symptoms are cyclical, that is a good sign or that is a Kind of, that's an indicator. Again, the typical kind of symptoms that we've indicated or that we've identified, but there's also another kind of key, uh, key way of identifying whether this is a problem or not is that when someone does go through a cyclical period of symptoms where the symptoms get worse, if the symptoms improve, By doing certain things, then you can have a good idea that it might be related to oxalates. So, for instance, if someone has severe fatigue, headaches, they have rapid heartbeat, and they have kind of diarrhea, for instance, then if they eat a food which is high in oxalates and it disappears, all of the symptoms get better, you can be pretty sure that this is an oxalate-related problem. Again, certain supplements such as calcium, magnesium, potassium along with the citrate component, if that improves the kidney pain or if that improves the diarrhea or if that improves the kind of uh, vaginal itching, then again, it's a, it's, it's a kind of, it's an indicator that this may be what someone is, is experiencing. Okay. Again, there's always going to be differential diagnosis. There's always going to be multiple things that go on, but one of the key, the, the key things that I look for is if someone has had a history of, um high oxalate intake in the diet that's one thing a history of things like antibiotic use that's another thing mm-hmm. if someone is as i said experiencing psych- cyclical symptoms which generally get worse when they cut out oxalates or when they have low oxalates in their diet and then at the same time if they get better when they eat more oxalates that is mm-hmm. you know almost certain that this problem have, has this person has a problem there's many people who don't right so actually you know it's it's kind of again we're human beings we like to have everything in like set boxes <laughs> and yeah we like to compartmentalize things and say right okay uh, i know the answers now and this is likely what's causing we like to have answers we like to have certainty we don't like the chaos of uncertainty kind of thing but you know what i try to continually get across to people is that this is a Applicable to a subsection of people, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who this doesn't seem to apply to,
0: yeah, I think the one thing I would also add as an indicator is if, in general, in your family you have ki- um kidney issues or if you've yeah. had kidney stones, I mean that's like the obvious one, but I just wanted to point it out because you didn't mention it um and just for reference for some of the people listening, um you know people don't know what five hundred milligrams is. is that like one spinach, so do you kind of want to give a little bit of reference um I know one other food that you didn't mention that's very high in oxalates is turmeric, the turmeric powder. So that's another thing I just wanted to mention. But if you want to give an example of what 500 milligrams might be.
1: Okay. Um, Let me just double check because I tend to forget the milligram contents. Yeah. Um, But generally, Mm -hmm. yeah, before going into that, I just want to, there's a couple of other foods that I didn't pinpoint turmeric is one of those black pepper many things like cinnamon it's not going to be problematic in small amounts for a healthy person but when someone is having tablespoons of this in their smoothie every day that's you know it's it's completely unnatural like it it gets away from the the original kind of concept of using these medicinal herbs as medicinal herbs you know in, in ayurveda or whatever um but in in the other foods which i think it's important that your listeners understand are are very high is actually many of the gluten-free grains grains in general are are higher than uh, you know they are clusters high but particularly many of the gluten-free grains where someone thinks that they're going on a healthy diet because they are cutting out gluten and then what they do is they replace the bread or they replace the cakes with certain types of gluten-free flour, um, nut flours, for instance, almond flour, which is very popular in something like the GAPS diet, and actually, when you have your um, your kind of uh, you're breaking down these nuts and making a flour, you're getting a very high amount of oxalates. Amaranth, um, ta- not tapioca, not tapioca starch, but amaranth um what else i Almost think all of
0: sorghum and also um there was another one i forget yeah. now
1: but yeah there's 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 lo- oh brown rice, rice. brown rice oh, is nice. really high now, so yeah bra- <laughs> brown rice brown rice is high again many of these grains some of the legumes not so much chickpeas you know not all greens so things like lettuce rocket or i think you call that a ar- ar- regular uh, yeah arugula arugula yeah yeah i mean there's many grains uh green vegetables that aren't particularly high um so it's important to distinguish exactly kind of what is what because it's easy to put all foods into this one category and kind yeah. of demonize entire food groups um right so one cup of raw spinach so if you if you have a cup measurement you fill that with oh sorry about that. If you, if you fill the cup measurement with, um, with spinach, you are getting approximately 200 milligrams of oxalate. Okay. So let me give an example. If someone is doing a green juice or green smoothie, they might be having, I I don't know. I never did the green juices, but I think some people put like two cups of spinach, something like that. I think that's minimal, right? Yeah. Minimal. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I, (laughs) i guess it can be worse but essentially um if you are cooking down your spinach then if you have a dish i mean spinach cooks down into absolutely nothing right (laughs) so actually you you can quite easily have have a dish i mean 500 milligrams is essentially two cups of spinach um how much almond flour i mean i think you're looking at about two cups of almond flour as well or three cups of almond flour so i mean that's like a couple of cookies or like uh you know like a. say a big slice of a cake with dark chocolate in it i think cacao is, is is generally really high um there's there's lots of lists online um which go through the exact amounts but generally many of them are kind of based on some outdated data so there is a facebook group which is called trying oxalates and they've actually collated a lot of the data which has been kind of cross-referenced and verified so they've got kind of the the most up-to-date and comprehensive list of foods um and yeah generally you'd be surprised at how little of a food that you would need to to reach 500 milligrams now just just for kind of reference so that your listeners understand um the recommended amount, I think it's the American Kidney Association. I think it is, but the recommended amount is that is that you have no more than 150 milligrams per day. Oh, right? I didn't know that. Yeah, so so generally, no more than 150 milligrams per day. Anything more than 150 milligrams is potentially going to contribute toward, or is potentially going to predispose someone yeah. to develop things like um, kidney stones or, or something like that. Whereas, you know. In a, in a, for reference, in one of these green juices, if you're having, if you're having turmeric, if you're having cinnamon, if you're having, uh, say, maybe some, some kind of juice kale and some spinach, then actually what you can be, you can be easily topping kind of a gram, easily, easily a gram. And when that happens, that's, you know, you're very much asking for problems.
0: Yeah. And a lot of people add almond milk which is like the unsweetened almond milk, they'll add peanut butter, they might add a little bit of cacao, and that all, like you said, adds to more oxalates. So, you know, in terms of uh, people transitioning to car- the carnivore diet, then would you recommend that everyone, you know, slowly transitions off oxalates, or, you know, is it that most people can go full carnivore, not worry about the oxalate dumping? Like, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Right. Yeah. So it has to be assessed on on an individual basis. Right. So essentially, if someone tries to go carnivore, uh, if they've been on a very high oxalate diet, they try to go carnivore and they immediately notice some quite severe symptoms, then I would say like they need to be adding in oxalate pretty quickly to their diet. And that's because on, on the groups who've been doing this for kind of two decades, It's generally recommended to reduce it very, very, very gradually. And the reason for this is is because if someone has um, a high burden of oxalates in their body, um, the body will try to get rid of it kind of as quickly as possible. Okay, And one of the primary determinants of how the body is getting rid of that is going to be the amount that's in the blood at any one given time. So if you're on a consistently high level of uh, high oxalate diet, then you're going to be propping up this blood level consistently and and your 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 tissues are going to preferentially be accumulating that your kidneys are going to be filtering whatever they can at any one given time but that's fairly limited whereas when you have for instance when you go on a carnivore diet you're cutting down your oxalate to practically zero overnight so when that happens the blood level of oxalate you, you don't have as much coming in from the from from the gut because you're not eating any oxalate containing foods and so actually what you then develop is you you have a very low level of oxalate in the blood and when that blood level drops then your tissues get basically they they sense the 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 drop in oxalate in the blood and they they start to dump it so they start to release it and when you you are releasing it it's it's activating your immune system it's pulling minerals it's doing all of this kind of weird and wacky stuff and it can cause a wide variety of problems quite severe problems to certain people so actually if someone does have um, a long standing issue with this then i mean there's there's multiple cases i've had several cases i know Sally's warned about this for a very long time so is susan owens is that actually certain people when they cut it out too quickly they can become acutely hypokalemic end up in the emergency room or accident and emergency as it's called in the uk um end up in accident and emergency in the uk simply because what's happening is is this massive dump of oxalate is essentially binding to a lot of the potassium screwing with the entire electrolyte and mineral balance and then what you're getting then is you're having all of this potassium wasting through the kidneys and so if someone is developing symptoms like they think they're having a heart attack they're getting severe palpitations they can't breathe they're having anxiety panic attacks so they go to the er department and they might find that actually they've got low blood potassium other than that everything is fine right they may have like a t-wave inversion on the ekg but ultimately most of the things they're just told that you know it's an anxiety attack or something so actually in many cases it can be very severe and so people can experience just a wide variety or a a A greatening in the severity of the symptoms that they've been dealing with for a very long time and it can be so severe that it you know it's a major stressor for the body so in those cases i would recommend to do it very much slowly if someone thinks that they might have an oxalate problem they need to do it gradually right most people who don't have these issues like they can go immediately to carnivore i do that with several people if you've got someone in good metabolic health and they just you know say they're into kind of uh sports or something like that or performance you know they just want to transition or they or they want to try it out then i don't see you know probably 70 80 percent of people will not have a problem transitioning the issue is is this subjection of people who are poisoned by oxalates they can do themselves a lot more damage so in regards to kind of my uh, the the principle the principle is more faster is not better in fact slower is sometimes better and it's very difficult to get that across to people because when you understand that you've potentially been poisoned and you've accumulated that poison and it's coming from a food that you're eating then most people have an innate aversion to that food they don't want to continue poisoning their body or they don't want to continue eating a food which they know is causing their health problems problem is is that they need to for the time being and generally over you know the period of maybe two three four months even if it's very significant they need to kind of gradually reduce that
0: so you think the transition period is about four months at its peak um to kind of like taper down to lesser oxalates um is it is there or is there no like kind of time frame i mean what do you mean by tapering down or, you know, slowing down the, um, consumption of oxalates? Like what would that time frame look like?
1: Okay. So that's going to differ greatly between different people. So for instance, right. there's this idea that you should basically, you should calculate how much you've had. I, I don't tend to do this, but they do this kind of in a more controlled way on the groups and things. You calculate how much you have, and then you divide that by 10 or 20, and you cut that down, so, so you cut down by either 5% per week or 10% per week, oh, depending wow. on how fast that is going to be. And so for some people, you know, if they've been on like a 1,500 milligram green smoothie oxalate diet for a long period of time, then the amount that they're reducing, you know, you divide kind of 1,000, they're going to be reducing it by kind of like 75 milligram per, per week. Okay, so that can take a long time. That's like many weeks kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Many other people find that actually they can do it a lot quicker. Um, I generally aim for I mean, if someone wants to go completely carnivore, then I would say in someone really severe. I mean, the the definition of of a low low oxalate diet is under 50 milligrams. Okay, under 50 milligrams. So, uh, again, working, calculating that kind of I don't have the numbers in front of me, but you have to you have to calculate Mm -hmm. it that's really low right and on a carnivorous primarily carnivorous diet i mean it's very you know you're on practically zero oxalate so in that case to move towards a primarily carnivorous diet if i think that that's what someone needs if they've been on a moderate oxalate diet, then we would do that in within the space of like three weeks, right? In right. some people, you just throw them straight into it. But in other people, in the people who you know are poisoned, who you have kind of test results, who you, you, you just know, right? You, you get a feel for it. You know these people have problems. If you do it quicker than over, I mean, I said four months, three to four months generally, very, 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 very slowly. Just just really slowly. So like taking out one food or say if they're having say if they're having like, um, you know, three stalks of Swiss chard, right? You know, the leaves, three leaves with with their dinner. I would say, right. OK, so take away one of those. <laughs> in the right,
0: week,
1: right. <laughs> just makes, really slowly.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I'll just add uh, one thing that Sally Norton said when I talked to her back then was the reason why it's not good to experience the oxalate dumping. Cause I know some people think, well, why don't I just go through the oxalate dumping real quick and then kind of get over it. But it, the risk is that you can actually damage cells where they won't, you know, they'll die. And so it's not yeah. ideal to go through that oxalate dumping. Um, yeah. In terms of anti-nutrients, so what do you think about the other ones, like lectins, phytates? Do you think you know, oxalic acid is kind of the worst?
1: Um, I think it's context-dependent, right? So mm-hmm. some people can eat oxalates and not necessarily have that much of a problem. Not a high-oxalate diet, but they can't touch lectins, for instance. Sure. Yeah? Okay. So, again, it's like we need to be looking at the individual. <laughs> And that's where it gets really difficult because you like to just apply these blanket rules to everyone. I mean, I'll be honest, like I generally recommend more of a, prim- you know, more of a carnivorous kind of approach or primarily carnivorous. Um, but in there's many people who don't want to go that route. Right? right. So it's kind of identifying. I think that oxalate is insidious because it accumulates. I think it, it you know, it. It is a real problem because it's not just like it's triggering the immune system. It's not like dairy, for instance. If you've got intolerance to dairy and it's causing you acne or it's causing you kind of autoimmune disease, when you cut it out after like a month or two months, generally like that will address the problem. When you have this problem of accumulation of oxalates, that when you cut it out, that's not even the start. You haven't even started the process. The process is going to go on potentially for years, right? Years. So that's why I think this stuff is really dangerous. And oftentimes, as well, is because if someone has a problem with dairy, then. I keep saying dairy, but you know, it, it could be any food. It could be a plant toxin. So, okay, if someone has a problem with gluten, generally one of the primary signs is they might develop brain fog or they might get bloating or they might get kind of joint pain or they might notice that their psoriasis flares, right? So oftentimes with something like gluten or non-celiac gluten sensitivity, there's usually some kind of a, an immediate reaction or a delayed it can be a delayed onset hypersensitivity but it can be like you know three days to a week so you can say okay i had that cake last week and now i you know i've broken out in psoriasis i'm pretty sure that that's the cake right problem is with oxalate oxalate is that you can go a very long time consuming so many oxalates way more than your body can deal with and you don't get any negative response There's usually no problem there's usually no identifiable issue that it's causing you a problem in fact many of these people say that they feel great they feel fantastic on green smoothies and then eventually it goes downhill and then like and you know sometimes it's a year two years three years down the line sometimes even longer ten years down the line that they identify that they realize okay and then they actually their body has accumulated this stuff it takes a long time to get rid of, right? So I think that oxalate is, I personally, it's, you know, I think it's one of the arch enemies in many people. So I would say it's it's more dangerous than the others. But again, you know, always context dependent. And there right. are kind of individual sensitivities. salicylates, for instance, you know, glutamates uh you name it there's all these different kinds of things which cause people problems so it's hard to differentiate assess on a case by case basis kind of yes
0: no i I absolutely agree with you i think it's very bio individual um in terms of anti-nutrients and you know what um is the most beneficial anti-nutrient for you to stay away from um Let's talk a little bit about biotin. So I know that um, some people say that on a high oxalate diet that um, the bio um, bioabsorption of biotin becomes very difficult. Um, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, okay. So biotin is one of the B vitamins. It's referred to as B7. Mm-hmm. Um, it's involved in I mean, it doesn't get the attention that it deserves, right? But I mean, it's generally known for healthy hair, healthy nails, healthy skin. Um, but at the same time, it's actually critical in how we're metabolizing energy, right? And so, I was saying before, you have these enzymes, these carboxylase enzymes, and these are primarily well, these require biotin as a cofactor. Biotin's also involved in how we are um in the kind of cell cycle. Uh, the expression of chromatin, the expression of certain types of DNA. We're using biotin in a process called biotinylation. Um, So it's really important on many different fronts. But actually, biotin, as it is kind of docking onto these enzymes, you have oxalate for whatever reason. it It can do that in place of biotin. So it can kind of, it's, I think it I think the way that it works is it's kind of displacing biotin so mm-hmm. that actually you've got the enzyme but the enzyme isn't working so you can maybe you've got enough biotin but actually you can be you can present with the symptoms of a functional biotin deficiency right and so sometimes that's actually pretty difficult to identify i mean one of the best tests for Biotin deficiency is uh, beta-hydroxyisovaleric acid in the urine, right? And that's, Mm -hmm. I mean, you would find that on a Genova ion and a Genova NutraVal. Methyl citric is also a marker that you might find on a GPLO, but I find it's not as sensitive. Problem is, is that theoretically, if you've got this problem, you could, I mean, you might, it might, be so subtle that it's not showing up on the tests. I've had many people who don't show up as biotin deficient on the tests, mm-hmm. but who, when they take biotin, they have really good results, right? So we can't always go off test results. Some people, there's like nonlinear ways that these, these vitamins are working. I think sometimes what they're doing is perhaps signaling other areas that aren't necessarily identifiable via testing. Um, but essentially, yeah. So when people have this problem, a little bit like thiamine, when people have a problem with oxalates, generally the, the three key nutrients that I find are prim- prim- primarily an issue is, is the B1, the B6, and also biotin. So biotin, what, what can happen is, is that if you do theoretically in the intracellular compartment or in the, on the compartment of enzymes, the active site, if you have oxalate, which has basically been bound up to many of these enzymes, when you take biotin, when some people actually supplement with biotin, and I'm not convinced that you can get enough from a diet, no matter what kind of diet you're eating. Many times it has to be super physiologic doses. Sometimes in the realm of kind of ten thousand or a th- at least a thousand times the RDA. Sometimes ten thousand times the RDA. Or, you know, uh, actually, what's happening is is what it's theorized to do is potentially displace displace oxalate from <clears throat> from this enzyme and kind of dock on to where the enzyme is it's a similar concept as um i don't know if you know much about testosterone replacement or testosterone optimization therapy this idea that actually you need um you need external forms of testosterone to displace the endocrine disrupting chemicals bound on the receptor little bit kind of similar concept that actually sometimes it almost seems like in these people you need a high dose of biotin to actually displace oxalate but when that happens what can happen is is that you are initiating a dumping scenario so you are kind of potentially going to be liberating free oxalate which is sure. then passed out of cells via the transporters and then again it hasn't really been characterized what we do know is that when someone takes biotin it can help with many of their health issues but at the same time it can produce the symptoms which they associate with oxalates okay mm-hmm. which they associate with oxalate dumping similar thing can happen with thiamine and b6 if someone is in, is is endogenously producing oxalate then again, it's kind of possible that what might be happening is that when they are taking exogenous thiamine or B6, they're reducing the amount that is being made in the liver and therefore reducing the the blood level, yeah. therefore initiating it to be coming out of tissues and therefore dumping it. So actually, a lot of it is anecdotal. I mean, we have some theoretical framework for how this might work. Unfortunately, the research hasn't been done, but the, th- the, the anecdotes are by, you know, looking at kind of 25,000, 30,000 people worldwide who experience similar things that sometimes they need thiamine supplementation, sometimes they need B6 and sometimes they need biotin. And when that happens, it can initiate a dump. Similar kind of process with Epsom salt baths or any kind of sulfur supplement, because what it's potentially doing is pulling out or pushing out oxalate from the cells
0: with this thought process, um, with your clients, how, you know, knowing that our body uses so many enzymes and cofactors, right? We don't always know if a certain nutrient deficiency is because of that true nutrient deficiency. So how do you solve for that when you work with clients? If they're, you know, low in B1 or B6, do you just supplement with those? Um, I'm curious to know the way you do that. Um, do you think just you know, solving by giving a B-complex vitamin makes sense? I mean, what are your thoughts?
1: Right. <clears throat> there's kind of different schools of thought here, right? So there's this idea, particularly in kind of carnivore or animal-based nutrition or keto, that, you know, you definitely don't need supplements. You can get it all from the diet. And I think that... Oh, no, you know, I, I'm not on that same page. Um, no, I, just, I think no, a I'm people... not saying that you are. I'm yeah, saying no, I know that, that most same. people
0: are... Yeah, um, I think uh, most carnivores, you're right. They believe just eating meats will heal everything. But I think if you have bad gut health, I think you need support. So I am not on that same page,
1: but go ahead. Yeah. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm glad that we agree there because (laughs) I'll be honest. Yeah. There are many failures, right. And they benefit from supplementation. So actually like, okay. Yeah. So, so in the context of a chronic nutrient deficiency, then it's like, right. There's a, couple kind of ideas of how to how to go about this there's this notion that okay you take a b complex where you're taking things that you don't necessarily need so you might not need b6 but you might only need the biotin so why take the b complex thing is with that is that you know all of the b vitamins are water soluble right so your body has a pretty good way of getting rid of what it doesn't need as long as you're not mega dosing like multiple different nutrients then Oftentimes, I don't see that taking a B complex is, is problematic. And there are several, I mean, Derek Lonsdale, for instance, who kind of pioneered the work on thiamine, kind of insisted that whenever you are to replace thiamine, for instance, um, you need to do it with a B complex behind it. So I generally use a B complex in, um, you know, just as a kind of safety measure. And people generally find that it gives them a perk of energy and things. Um, ultimately, in terms of resolving or identifying like a chronic nutrient issue, sometimes it won't come up in testing. But again, you see, there's this idea, right? Uh, again, this is kind of taking a note from Lonsdale's book. I don't know if you're familiar with um, with the book by Chandler Mars and Derek Lonsdale. It's called High Calorie Malnutrition, uh, Thiamine Deficiency Disease and Dysautonomia. No, I don't. But I'll um, I'll put it in the show notes. I'll get right. That. Okay. Yeah. I'll send you that. Okay. okay. So... He lays out a framework and I think it, you know, it seems to make so much sense. And it's exactly what I see in real life when someone has been on a processed, carbohydrate diet or processed modern diet for such a long period of time and they they say they are suffering from some kind of chronic illness particularly when we're looking at things like chronic fatigue syndrome muscle activation syndrome fibromyalgia the very complex very complex conditions that it's so multifaceted kind of thing and there's no one one kind of there's no one way around it you have to work on multiple levels at multiple different times so in a case like this when someone has gone a, such a long time being so deficient in certain nutrients then there's this idea that actually the body to conserve energy what it will do is potentially down regulate the number or the the quantity of enzymes that are using a particular cofactor right so let me give you an example right he he, Lonsdale did a lot of his work on thymine and I you know I, I really think that this is very important but actually what he found or what he theorized what he identified was that when we consume and this is a not a radical concept very basic kind of nutrition when you consume refined foods when you consume this high calorie so lots of macronutrients but low mac- micronutrients mm-hmm because we need the micronutrients to process the macronutrients, when we're having lots of refined empty calories, we're gradually depleting our micronutrient stores, right? Mm. And so if you kind of can maintain a level of kind of stable physiology with continual supply of macronutrients and micronutrients, you're probably going to be in good health. But actually, because the majority of kind of Westerners have this bombardment of sugar processed refined carbohydrates what this is very much doing is depleting many of our nutrients but primarily our thiamine because thiamine is the key nutrient is the most important nutrient to burn carbohydrates and actually on a high carbohydrate diet you're using roughly twice as much b1 as you are the other nutrients in processing the energy so actually because many people who come to us right they come to us they've had long-term kind of history of Consuming lots of sugar, very likely that their thiamine status has been quite poor. And what can happen is, is that essentially when the status or when the intake of, of the nutrient is low for such a long period of time, you think these these nutrients are cofactors for specific enzymes. Right. The problem is, is that these enzymes are energy costly to maintain, right? It's costly to maintain and repair an enzyme or a protein. So actually, if you've got this continually low amount of micronutrient coming in, then what you, what you are likely going to do to conserve energy, down-regulate many of the processes which aren't being used efficiently because you are deficient. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So in this case... It's almost like then you have something like the straw that broke the camel's back. So someone will kind of, you know, there's this idea that there's these antecedents. So chronic stress, antibiotic use, drug use, toxicity, poor diet. These are the antecedents. But then there's this trigger. I'm sure you see it all the time because I see it all the time. The trigger is like the straw that broke the camel's back. And it's never the cause, but it's usually just something small, a family trauma, an infection, something like that. And, and all of a sudden, they, they, they their health just completely crashes, right? They call it a crash oftentimes in their own words. So they say that's when their health crashed. Well, bringing someone out of that state is in so much harder than how they got into there. It's yeah. kind of like this. It's very likely that there's a complex array of chronic nutrient deficiencies which kind of set them up for that. And then, boom, that initial trigger kind of, you know, as I said, calls them to crash and so there's this idea that perhaps what is going on is these long-term adaptations to conserve energy are part of of that kind of lower state of physiology after the crash so it's like you've got someone with chronic fatigue syndrome actually by giving them a a, a nutrient-rich diet Mm. what you're doing is Yeah, you're giving them kind of what they would have required previously, but because everything's down regulated to conserve energy, it's almost like it's not enough. So even though you're improving nutrient density, I think this applies with B6, I think this applies with B1, biotin perhaps, because you are kind of, the body is in this conservation mode, it's in this survival mode kind of thing. It's almost like in that state, the only way to get it out, and this is Lonsdale's theory, but I found it to be perfectly correct, is the only way to get someone out of that lower metabolic state is by saturating or megadosing specific nutrients Mm. to kind of wake the system back up again. It's almost like telling the system that it doesn't have to worry anymore. It doesn't have to conserve so much energy. It has enough to do what it needs to do, and so it can start upregulating all of these essential functions and someone can start making energy again. Does that kind of make sense?
0: Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, that's how whenever I work with um, clients initially they're on a lot of supplements because we do the symptom burden assessment where we just kind of look at how their symptoms are showing signs of, you know, maybe their organs or certain areas need support. And in these areas, you know, that's why I think a lot of people that start carnivore, and they're like, well, I'm eating all this meat. Why am I not feeling as good? Or why am I still not able to sleep through the night? Or, you know, or they still have adrenal issues. And it's like, yeah, maybe you need a little bit of support because yeah. maybe you still have gut issues. Maybe your adrenals were that, that whole HPA access was a little wonky that you need a little bit more supplement support. Right. Um, yeah. I think one yeah. of the indications is how a lot of people can't lose weight. Right. Because their hormones are all messed up. And I think it was like you were saying, the micronutrient deficiencies will shut off the areas that are, you know, considered more ancillary to survival, right. And so I'm completely on the same page. And that's where I think a lot of people should start with supplementation to, you know, um, facilitate the healing process. And then you can down regulate a lot of the supplements. So I'm completely on the same page. And I I didn't know of this uh, man's work and it sounds, uh, yeah, I would definitely like to read the book. It's fascinating.
1: Yeah. And I'll be honest. Like, I think that you would find a lot of clinical utility because I see, you know, like, as you said, you know, there's some people on carnivore because you read all of these amazing testimonies. Everyone is, you know, (laughs) in magic land. It it fixes all of their problems. Yet for many people, they read those testimonials and they what they feel like is they, they they wonder why they can't achieve that, yeah. right? Because they have been doing this. Maybe they've been doing it a year. Maybe they've been doing it six months or something, 18 months. And they still do not feel well. They're still in this kind of state. And they're actually, you know, I've had that many cases of using high dose nutrients and back to the original question that you kind of asked it's kind of identifying what that person needs and oftentimes it's symptoms as well so going through you know this is where a case history a non-biased approach and actually a very in-depth case history looking at all the symptoms the reactions everything like that if you know what to look out for as you know you can really pinpoint things which might have been missed And then, you know, a temporary period of quite high-dose supplementation, their response to that is going to tell you everything. And that actually sometimes, I mean, I've had some people, I had one guy, he'd been on carnivore for, I mean, how long? He'd been on carnivore for like a year. He'd had diarrhea. He'd have all these kinds of things. So you're looking at kind of, okay, potentially nutrient deficiencies, but he'd had a history of fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, dizziness, vertigo. We used very high-dose B1, B2, B-complex, and within like a week, you know, he had he had he had made ninety five percent more improvements than he had in the entire year previous just doing carnival. Right? So again, like I forget the question that you asked because I kind oh, of gone up just... on a tangent. I I apologize.
0: No, no, I completely agree with you. That's why I, I you know, I love what you just explained, but it's really just um you know, if if you were to do like the oats test, and in some of the nutrients um, specifics, if they say, oh, you know, this person is low in B six, do you just go and um, you? As we talk about how a lot of nutrients have cofactors and coenzymes, do you, it does it make sense to then um, just? you know, implement a B6 regiment um, more than maybe trying to dig a little deeper and see if what the really core issue of why the B6 is low.
1: Yeah, uh, of course. So, so y- again in that context you want to identify why they are low in b6 first of all so is it that they are taking the oral contraceptive pill do they have a history of taking the oral contraceptive pill are they have they got chronic digestive issues is there something else going on you kind of look at the risk factors for deficiency you know are they are they drinking half a bottle of wine every night doesn't matter if they're eating loads of liver are they you know are they still an alcoholic kind of thing so there's always these other kinds of things and depending on the nutrient i would generally tend to um, you know err on the side of caution if i'm gonna use one nutrient in high doses i will tend to use a b complex behind that just to be safe um, but ultimately with specific nutrients you would be looking at specific cofactors so for instance b1 generally the the primary cofactor for b1 is actually magnesium so mm-hmm. the idea you shouldn't be giving thymine without magnesium but then what often happens particularly in carnivores is that if someone is very deficient in thiamine and you give high doses of thiamine with magnesium, what I tend to see a lot is that actually they start there's like an increased requirement for potassium yeah so actually the potassium goes right down and they might not even be taking any magnesium they may have to come off the magnesium actually replenish potassium instead so it's kind of like continually keeping an eye retesting yeah. that kind of stuff um with something like b6 i mean yeah with b6 i think it's less specific so i would be right. looking at Okay, B6 with a B complex with something like biotin, you have to keep in mind biotin's interaction with pantothenic acid. So some women actually find that they can develop cystic acne with biotin. And sometimes that can be helped with taking a pantothenic acid or B5 to the side of it because biotin can kind of interact with... Um, with it can stop your absorption of pantothenic acid. But then what you often find as well is that by giving one high dose of a nutrient, it does inevitably throw out others. So what you find with someone with oxalate problems, they've got issues with thiamine, they've got kind of chronic fatigue or dysautonomia, you give a very high dose of thiamine, but then you need to monitor that monitor their folate and B12 status. Because what this can do, and again, Lonsdale kind of explains it very nicely, eloquently but it kind of unmasks of other, other deficiencies. As you are pushing one pathway, you're kind of having um, effects on other pathways yeah. and you're, you're kind of speeding up everything. So you say you're putting down the gas pedal and then you are ultimately going to be unmasking or un, un kind of highlighting other deficiencies, which were not previously a problem because everything slowed down. Mm-hmm. But actually, as you start to speed things up, then it turns out that actually they're low as well in other things now ideally you want to be getting everything from the diet so i like to recommend i mean some people don't agree with this i like to recommend kind of a nose to tail approach in terms of okay if they're you know if they're low in folate try get as much liver as possible but also at the same time if they've got a chronic health condition then we have to understand that actually these metabolic conditions these health conditions can cause wasting of certain nutrients we can have um sparing of other nutrients we can have kind of increased requirement if someone has chronic arthritis and it takes them six months to get over kind of to to get into remission with carnivore we have to understand the effects of inflammation on glutathione the effects of inflammation on b6 if you've got inflammation in a tissue you're depleting b6 locally so you're therefore increasing your requirement and some people if they're in this chronic inflammatory state It just doesn't seem that you can get enough from the diet. Now, maybe 20,000 years ago, excellent, yeah, but you don't have all of these chemicals and toxins and things that we have nowadays. Um, And again, kind of, um, you know, to be, what's the word, maybe a maverick, but more of a kind of uh, heretic kind of thing, I actually use vitamin C in some carnivores because I find that actually some people get bleeding gums and they get kind of other... I've had a couple of people who present with what you would call clinical scurvy, or at least subclinical scurvy, not end-stage scurvy. And, you know, I will admit that 90% of people on carnivore probably don't need any vitamin C or they don't need to take it. They get enough from the diet. But when we factor in these chronic inflammatory conditions, heavy metal burden, as you understand, you know, mercury, aluminium, arsenic all of these effects they deplete our methyl donors so that increases our requirement for methylation the methylated b vitamins they deplete our glutathione status they deplete all of this stuff and actually we need to recycle glutathione we do that using vitamin c or no sorry we recycle vitamin c using glutathione so if we are depleting our glutathione status then whatever little vitamin C that we're getting in, we may not be able to recycle. So sometimes a little bit, just a little bit supplementally, while someone is kind of on their road to health comes in handy. And I'm really glad that you kind of, uh, you know, that you can see that as well.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, that's why I always say nutrition is so complex that it's like you know just to use a hormone replacement therapy when you don't know what exactly in the whole you know um, endocrine system is kind of causing that um, whether it's like too much cortisol is stealing all the b vitamins that affect the hormones right there's so many complex pathways and so i am completely on the same page and i love that you talked specifically about all these b complex vitamins because a lot of carnivores believe well i eat so much meat And all the meat has all the B vitamins, so why would I ever need a B vitamin complex, right? And in certain situations, we do need it, right? And you've talked so eloquently about a lot of them, and so I love it. I mean, I'm a firm believer that while you're healing, if you are sick enough to kind of try carnivore, then you may need, right, you may need the supplementation. And why wait, like, two years for your micronutrients to, like, upregulate, as you said, you can kind of do it in the beginning first few months and then not have to supplement not have to suffer but um it's like you said there's a lot of dogma about no when you go carnivore you eat just meat drink water and you're healed forever right and it's just it's unfortunate because a lot of people don't have to suffer for as long as um, a lot of people do because they believe in these anecdotal stories and you're obviously going to heal hear the ones that are the most um, fast healing, right? And the most um, awe-inspiring, and that's why they get tremendous play. But a lot of people, they don't heal that quickly, you know? And so, and I've seen that in my clients. Obviously, it sounds like you've seen it in your clients. Just from your experience, do you see any new um, supplements or nutrients that maybe carnivores um and i know again this is very bio individual but would you say that there are specific supplements that you generally see or nutrients that you generally see carnivores should be kind of consuming more
1: that's that's an excellent question um right so there's a couple things that i think generally would not hurt to at least go through period of time Mm -hmm. that everyone could probably getting a little little bit more of i would say iodine is one of those i'm mm-hmm. not sure if you're familiar with the work on iodine i'm yeah. not saying 50 milligram doses i don't necessarily think that that is for everyone but actually a low dose of iodine if you look at the analysis of certain foods we're not we're not necessarily getting a lot we are coming right. into contact with chlorine bromine these things which actively rob us so right. so what i would say to your question is kind of you know i like to take a kind of 30,000 foot view, if possible, and look at all of the things that potentially are stealing stuff away from us, stealing the good things and adding the bad things. And one of those, you know, iodine is definitely attacked, it's attacked in our body, it's you know, it's very much kind of uh disrupted. Another one is potentially boron, right? Boron, I don't know if. The dietary intake of boron is significant. It depends where you are. Same as silica, it depends exactly where you are. Your water supply, most of us right. have kind of, you know, we have different water supplies. We have kind of heavy metals in our water supplies, in our tap water, this kind of stuff. Um, Generally, yeah, I would say boron, iodine, maybe silica. Those are two kind of or three trace minerals which I think aren't going to hurt in very low doses. And I, I personally take those. I don't, you know, I don't think that, um, you know, I, I don't see any any negative to kind of, you know, I'd rather be safe than sorry. Right. Um, in terms of, again, it's, again, it's highly individual, right? So I work with a lot of people with chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia. I use B1 in many of those people. I, okay. d- I, ju- I just do because it tends to be, you know, you just attract a certain type of client, <laughs> Well, yeah, I just tend to attract people who think that they have a B1 deficiency and actually their symptoms fit well and they respond really well to that. Um, One thing I'll say is
0: um, there is a functional test that you can do for iodine deficiency and it's getting that um, iodine tincture, you know, so when you have um, like a wound, you use that um, the the antiseptic and so what you can do is put it on your skin and you'd make like a small patch you note the time and then I think it's for about 24 hours if you can still see a stained patch on your skin it's kind of telling you that okay your body is sufficient in iodine and so you don't need any more um exogenous iodine and then if it's completely gone within 12 hours then you definitely need some iodine so that's a cool way to kind of test um that's something that i do on
1: my clients i'm just gonna say it's like you know we have to kind of sometimes unnatural environmental conditions can require unnatural interventions and we have to kind of keep on our toes you know we're in a very toxic world as you know and so you know there's these onslaughts from all Sides at the moment, and it's very much we kind of just have to do our best and, and you know, uh, try to monitor our health status in various ways and, and do what we can,
0: right? No, I absolutely agree. Um, so with all this said, like, what do you eat typically in a day,
1: right? Okay, so I tend to cycle, right? So I will go kind of periods generally in the wintertime, I'll go periods of very deep ketogenesis or carnival. Um, and then I, I also like to push my body, right? So I am in, I would say currently where I am, I've got relatively okay metabolic flexibility. So I can quite easily burn carbohydrate for energy. So, you know, I don't shy away from carbs necessarily like, uh, for instance, this winter time. I mean, I've been primarily carnivorous for bar kind of two months ago. I was Mm -hmm. mostly meat, liver, Um, I like kind of bone broths. I'm not a fan of bone marrow. I can't quite get my head around it, but I like to drink it. I can't eat it yet. Um, Yeah, generally fatty beef, fatty lamb. I eat a lot of fatty beef, fatty lamb. I do eat some pork. I tend to get, I tend to do better on pork. I don't really eat any greens. Don't eat any chocolate. What I do like, I do like some egg yolks. um, But if I eat too many of them, then I Find that they tend not to agree with me that much i've always had a bit of an allergy against egg whites so i am quite sensitive to eggs um i eat a little bit of goat's cheese um and some kind of fermented or raw cheeses uh Mm -hmm. but very little uh i've these past two months i've been having some more potato um but other than that i don't really eat many plants it's primarily animals uh i like the old can of sardines so i generally have like a can of sardines maybe three or four times a week okay. um and sometimes i will get cravings for vegetables or fruit so actually i will kind of just get a ravenous craving for like a head of broccoli for some reason i'm not entirely sure why that is but i like to listen to my body you know i don't like to be very set and because i don't have any ongoing health condition you yes. know I- i get craving for broccoli i'm going to eat some broccoli um but generally that will just be kind of steamed or you know um if i want some fruit generally i tend to eat fruit a little bit more fruit in the uh in the kind of summertime when it's seasonal so i might eat some berries or i might you know eat some apples for instance generally 90 percent of my calories will be coming from animal food so what about you
0: no, that makes sense. Um, I, For the most part, I'm pretty much strict carnivore. I just do better with that. Um, I have kind of like the black and white thinking. So when I open the doors for with a little bit of carbs, I notice that I keep kind of dipping my toes into it until I fully go f- for all these carbs. And so I've just did, um, done better um, in terms of mental health with just going full meat based when you know you feel better on a certain way of eating, you just kind of stay that way. And for me, uh, just eating carnivore has helped a lot. So that's why I stick to it. It's not necessarily that my physical body um, can't handle plants.
1: Yeah, in in certain people, you know, any amount of carbs can really just kind of open the door, as you said. And I, I don't know Whether there's some kind of genetic predisposition, whether I don't know what what is governing that. But some people, my other half, any any sugar, any fruit, any carbohydrate. And it's like it just sends her down the path of kind of pigging out on it. So she is just primarily carnivore and she's great on it. She's fantastic on it. For me, you know, I can be a bit more flexible. But, yeah, it's it's individual, right? And maybe right. that will change for you as well. Maybe there will be a time when you feel a craving for something and, you know, as long as kind of you trust your body. and But then again, you know, the craving yeah, so... can also be sugar as well. So.
0: Right. So, I mean, you know, there's a ton of studies where they show sugar is addictive. Um and you know, when it comes to plants, I think right now it's the mindset of, well, o- only the animal kingdom. And so when you open the plants, it's also opens the nuts and then opens the sugar, right? So I would love to get to a place where um, I can eat the, I guess, the most innocuous plants and all that but you know I've tried um, adding a little bit of kimchi and then it over time right because it's like the fermented good for your prebiotics that type of thing and then it slowly you know added a little bit more and more and so um, you know I trust that one day I can get there but for now it's like working so you know why, why fix something that's not broke kind of thing yeah
1: right? exactly so, exactly
0: um, yeah. And I, I do think there's a little bit of a genetic component. I think you're kind of, um, so Gretchen Rubin has this book where she talks about personality types of moderators versus abstainers. So some people do really well moderating. It sounds like you're a moderator. Um, my husband's a moderator. So when he tried to do carnivore and made him go insane, uh, he, he was physically feeling great. But the fact that he could not touch an apple or something was making him crazy he's one of those people that can have like a chocolate bar and they'll sit there for months he can have like one piece at a time and it's completely fine um, and then there's the abstainers which is more like a personality like mine where it's the one percent of one percent um accessibility makes it much more different difficult than having zero percent access accessibility if that makes sense yeah. um And so it's really kind of the balance of nutrition, but also getting to know yourself and seeing what works for you and your kind of, and obviously it always goes back to bio-individuality. All right guys, I hope you guys learned a lot about oxalates and I hope you guys have a better understanding of how nutrition works in our bodies and it's not just a simple fix. I hope you guys understand all the benefits of going meat-based, but how supplements do have a place Um, That can benefit you. All right, guys, you know the drill make sure to eat a lot of meat Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you guys soon. Bye. Take care Thanks for listening to the nutrition with Judy podcast